everyone. Today, I'd like to talk to you about diversity. Conversations about diversity are taking place on college campuses, in HR departments, in the media, and within the scientific community. People are talking about diversity in the workforce, in the student body, in the rainforest, the economy, and in political systems. In all of these cases, diversity is rightly seen as a good thing. Yet despite the value we place on diversity, we have not done a very good job of managing it. We've been reactive, not proactive. And as a result, we've backpedaled our way out of many messes we've created, from global warming to racial, sexual, cultural, and economic equality, inequality. But we've learned from these processes too. And perhaps the most important thing we've learned is that a small shift in diversity can have a huge impact. Now I'm here to talk about expanding the conversation to include mental diversity. But first, I want to talk about wolves. Yay. <laughs> so, when I was little, I was in speech therapy for approximately seven years. And one of the hate-love relationships I have is with the word wolves. I always mispronounced it, and so bear with me here as we go through. <laughs> In the 1800s, when settlers arrived in the American West, they viewed wolves as threats to both human and livestock. Bounties were placed on wolves, and as a result, they were systematically killed off. Absent for 70 years, wolves were slowly reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park in the United States in 1995. This move was extremely controversial. Ranchers fought against it, complaining that the wolves would lay waste to their cattle. But environmentalists viewed reintroduction as a positive and saw wolves as a necessary part of the environment. Yet neither of these groups could have imagined the dra dramatic changes the wolves would create. In 2014, a four-and-a-half-minute video called How Wolves Change Rivers went viral. This video shows how in a very short time, wolves created what is called a trophic cascade in Yellowstone National Park. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom, radically impacting an entire ecosystem during that process. Despite their small numbers, the wolves who arrived in Yellowstone made elk well nervous. The elk population had built up during the wolves' absence because there was no predator to hunt them. As a result, the elk had grazed away most of the vegetation in the valleys and gorges. But when the wolves arrived, they killed some of the elk. But more importantly, they changed the elk's behavior. Grasses and trees lured rabbits and other small animals. Um, the elk moved to the top of the valley instead of the vegetation in fear that they would be slaughtered. And because of that, vegetation started to grow back. In some areas, the height of trees quintupled in just six years. 
Songbirds and migratory birds returned to feed on seed pods and nest in the burrows of trees. As trees grew larger, beavers showed up and used trees for food and dam building. The dam's slowed river flow through high water, helped to control floods, and provided habitat for muskrats, ducks, and fish. Ravens and bald eagles came to feed on the carrion and the corpses that the wolves left behind. And because elk weren't grazing on these riverbanks and breaking them down, there was less sediment in the water, less erosion. Rivers grew cleaner and stabilized their course. All of Yellowstone is now benefiting from an increase in biodiversity. But before that could happen, it took 70 years to convince people that wolves were worth it. I love using the wolf as an example, not only because I think wolves are amazing creatures or because I'm a masochist when it comes to speech therapy, (laughs) but because, like the gray wolf, I was once very misunderstood by my peers, by my doctors, by my parents, and even my grandmother. When I was a teenager, I had fairly low self-esteem, and I was sitting in the car with my grandma, and she told me she had a piece of criticism she wanted to give me. (laughs) I thought she was going to tell me that I was ugly or that I smelled bad, but instead she said I was monotoned and I need to take acting lessons. So, I did take acting lessons, and it was rather awkward. Only because I was cast as an Oompa Loompa in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) And I was taller than the main characters. (laughs) The same incident happened when I was cast as a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz. I was taller than Dorothy. And to add to my monotoneness, they cast me as part of the tornado where I'd have to wear black strings and like run around in circles. That was really odd thinking. Um, And so I came to the conclusion that being monotone was the least of my problems. (laughs) From a young age, I was extremely reactive. My mother never knew what would set me off. At the slightest provocation, I'd fly into an uncontrollable rage. I'd kick and scream and break stuff. My mom remembers handing me an ice cream cone when I was about three, and for no apparent reason, I threw it on the pavement and started whirling around like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. People thought I was possessed, but most thought I was just a spoiled kid throwing a temper tantrum. But it was more than that. I suffered from sensory overload, even in my dreams. I had night terrors, which still continue to this day. I scream and thrash around in my sleep and have great difficulty waking up. I also dealt with sensory integration issues. For years, I refused to shower because water made my skin crawl. I can assure you that my hygiene routines are up to standard now. (laughs) On top of that, most food made me gag. So I stuck to the common American comfort foods. You know, mashed potatoes, tomato soup, and Peking duck. (laughs) So needless to say, my family was into takeout. 
I was also hypersensitive to texture. Certain fabrics, like velvet and towels, felt like nails to a chalkboard, worse than those irritating tags on the back of clothes that make you want to rip your shirt off. Unfortunately, that pissed me off, too. I especially hated tight things around my head, like headbands and hats. In seventh grade Spanish class, my teacher passed around a sombrero, which kids were supposed to put on when it was their turn to speak. When it was my turn, I told my teacher I didn't want to wear it. Why not, she asked. I couldn't tell her the truth, that the sombrero would make me feel like a vacuum cleaner sucking out my brain, because she'd think I was crazy. So instead, I lied and told her I had lice. (laughs) So she sent me to the nurse, and it turned out I actually did have lice. (laughs) It wasn't all bad. To some extent, my quirks were manageable. And to the degree they weren't, there were doctors. I had a really creepy doctor when I was little who wouldn't talk to me. He just let me sleep on his couch. But that's just one of the many doctors I went to as a child. I was born in 1992, and although Asperger's syndrome was first listed in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in 1994, most doctors didn't know about it. So at age six, I was diagnosed as bipolar and prescribed mood stabilizers like Depakote, Risperdal, and Seroquel. Later, I took Adderall for ADHD and Wellbutrin for depression and was always heavily medicated. Like most drug addicts, I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I have friends I went to school with who tell me about stories about stuff we did together, and I don't remember any of it, and some I choose not to remember. When I was 12, living at another treatment center, I was put on an antipsychotic medication, which paradoxically had the effect of medically inducing me into a state of psychosis. I started to see things that weren't there, and I became increasingly paranoid. I was convinced that the people at the school had poisoned my food, so I wouldn't eat. I was afraid to go to bed because I thought I would be killed in my sleep. The hallucinations became so severe, I was convinced I was up against zombies and other terrifying grudge-like creatures, similar to a horde of zombies found in the popular movie World War Z. And despite the comforting presence of Brad Pitt, my movies were terrifying. (laughs) Going back a bit, Recently, I was flipping through one of my childhood journals, and I found a written prompt on the top of the page saying, what do you wish for? My eight-year-old self wrote, I wish I didn't have bipolar disease. Um, Along with all my hypersensitivities and behavioral issues, my biggest obstacle to independence was my lack of social skills. I just didn't fit in anywhere. My family thought I would end up institutionalized. Nobody could see a future for me that would include graduating from college, for getting married and doing the things that every parent wishes their child would be able to do. 
For starters, I had great difficulty reading people and conforming to social norms. Kids would tell jokes at school, but I never laughed. In fact, I found it hard to understand humor at all, despite being able to dish it out with ease. (laughs) Girls my age identified with Jennifer Aniston or Britney Spears. I identified with Wednesday from the Addams Family. (laughs) I had a lot going on emotionally, but you couldn't read it from my expression. Socially awkward and lacking confidence, I was an easy target for bullies. Things hit a breaking point when I was 11 years old, and a peer on a bus who bullied me regularly sexually assaulted me. Like many girls with disabilities, this would not be the last time I experienced that kind of abuse. And being marginalized like this only increased my sense that something was wrong with me, and therefore affected my self-image. While my parents proactively searched for new treatments for my symptoms, it took a while to correctly diagnose me, 13 years to be exact. At age 13, I moved from my family in New Mexico to go to Utah to a residential treatment center called Maple Lake Academy. There, I found a therapist who understood my social anxiety, my aversions, my trauma, and how to treat them. That's when I learned that I had Asperger's Syndrome, which now is known as Autistic Spectrum Disorder. What is Autistic Spectrum Disorder? And specifically, what is high-functioning autism? In short, it's a higher-functioning form of autism that impairs the basic social skills that one is expected to display, notably reading social cues. It makes everyday communication a challenge, In addition to this, there may be sensory issues or processing issues that accompany these sorts of symptoms. But learning its definition was only the beginning. Maple Lake Academy encouraged us to learn everything we could about our own mental diagnosis. And so I read the DSM Made Easy, which is like the idiot's guide to crazy. It included case studies and cartoons with cheesy captions, my favorite being a cartoon of a therapist talking to a father and son, both of whom have ADD. The therapist says to them, you always dream your child will have what you never had. In this case, it's Ritalin. (laughs) As I studied the DSM, I became a bit of a mental health snob. I thought some disorders were cooler than others. (laughs) I took pride in having friends with more than one disorder. (laughs) One of my friends had narcissistic personality disorder. As you can imagine, she talked about herself constantly. (laughs) But here's the thing. She also had selective mutism disorder. So every once in a while, she'd shut up. Anyways, after 18 months of hard work, I graduated from Maple Lake and went on to a normal high school, where despite my challenges, I began to thrive. After all, you might wonder, isn't autism awful? Surely it's a debilitating weakness, or at least a disadvantage, right? 
But for me, it's the opposite. It's a gift. (laughs) This is a shirt I wore when I was 13, and I made it for myself and my friends at um, our treatment center that we went to. Let me tell you about my brain. I am a very visual person. I think in pictures, not words. To me, words are more like feelings and instincts. Language is kind of exclusive to our species anyway. I'm a bit more primitive, like a beta version of Google Translate. (laughs) On top of the night terrors I described before, I also had this amazing ability to lucid dream. I've had it my whole life. It means I can control what I dream, and it's cooler than in the movies. Besides flying, breathing fire, and making hot men appear, (laughs) I can do things like read and write music. Fun fact, I wrote my personal statement for my college application in a dream, and I did get accepted. There are many people like me who think visually. Nikola Tesla, for example, who could fully visualize, design, test, and troubleshoot his inventions with total accuracy in his mind. My brain also has the ability to hyper-focus on subjects that interest me for hours, days, and even weeks at a time. Unfortunately, this focus did not extend to where I left my wallet or keys. And this ability to hyperfocus has enabled me to think innovatively and make connections that other people may not think about, like how corals in a reef communicate to coordinate survival. An idea came to me in Bali on a study abroad program when I was 19, a college sophomore. We were studying tropical ecology, climate change, and its impact on the coral reefs. When I began to think about what the world would be like without coral reefs, While they cover less than 1% of the Earth's surface, coral reefs are vital to more than 500 million people who depend on them for food, jobs, and recreation. At an estimated economic impact of $375 billion a year. Here in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef supports the highest marine biodiversity in the world. Its economic value is estimated at over $6 billion a year. Were coral to become extinct, experts predict a reverse tropic cascade. Not only would ocean marine life be destroyed, the fishing industry, which employs 38 million people worldwide, would collapse, as would economies that depend on the coral reefs for tourist dollars. Like northeastern Australia, Losing the coral reefs would be devastating and cause hunger, poverty, political instability would follow. But perhaps the greatest disaster would be that Finding Dory, the sequel to Finding Nemo, which is currently in production, would never see the light of day. (laughs) In Bali, I started thinking about ways to prevent further destruction of the reefs. So during my downtime, while reading pharmacology and neuroscience journals for fun. It is fun, trust me. (laughs) I came across a term called quorum sensing. Basically, quorum sensing 
is a biological process by which bacteria communicate. If you've seen the movie Avatar, you'll remember how all the plants communicate with each other through non-scientific hippie life systems, like light. So I began to think that corals must also communicate to survive and wondered if form sensing might be the way corals do that. After all, bacteria live inside all corals, providing them with nutrition and even their characteristic colors. Maybe they did other things too. My research focused on recreating the process of quorum sensing that takes place on a coral with the goal of preserving and sustaining the life. From there, the biodiversity would be maintained. About a month later, when I was back at school, my brother Nicholas emailed me about a competition focusing on research in biodiversity. Through that competition, I wrote a paper called Environmental Threats on the Symbiotic Relationship of Quorum Sensing and Coral and submitted it to the competition where I won first place. I never dreamed I would win. I never dreamed that the scientific community would be so interested in this or that my paper would be published in Columbia University's Sustainable Development Journal. And I definitely never imagined the offer I'd get next to speak about this paper at the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity, which brought together 14,000 delegates from 193 countries. Because if I did, I would have taken my grandmother's advice more seriously in those acting (laughs) lessons. (laughs) The irony about my coral reef paper, of course, was that it all centered on communication, which I considered myself horrible at. And yet, publishing and presenting this paper changed my life. All of a sudden, the socially awkward Asperger's girls was being recognized for talents she barely knew she possessed. And what followed was my very own trophic cascade. I found my affinity for inspiring others overcome adversity, particularly those in mental health areas. In addition, I found my passion for science. People began to contact me for speaking engagements. I did two TED Talks, including TED Woman last year in California. I recently just finished all of my undergraduate coursework and I'm about to graduate and I'm signed with a New York literary agent to write a graphic novel that helps people with mental problems, and particularly youth. My logic is that for the older generations, for anyone who does not really believe that these issues exist, I figure they're going to die soon, so I should focus... (laughs) So I would focus on the younger generations as a preventative measure. This is an example of one of the drawings I recently worked on. And from there, I'll be illustrating the book as well. But the real and more profound impact of all of this is my potential to influence the future, not just for autistic people, for the world at large. One of the things with Asperger's that people often don't realize is that they have a complex inner life. 
I know I have a very colorful personality, rich ideas, and there's a lot going on in my mind, but there is a gap between what I'm thinking and feeling and how I communicate that with the rest of the world. I often tell people when I congratulate them, the enthusiasm is there, you just can't see it. (laughs) But unfortunately, this lack of enthusiasm contributed to a spotty employment history. So I applied to Waffle House. My logic was that if I could get hired by a sketchy 24-hour diner, and if I couldn't get hired, then who else would hire me? I was desperate. Waffle House is an American 24-hour diner where you can order your hash browns cooked in the many ways a human would try and dispose of a corpse. (laughs) Slice, dice, peppered, smothered, capped, topped, chunked, and covered. And I'm not even kidding. This is on their menu. It's like, yeah. (laughs) So I decided to stop by and see if they were hiring. Social norms would have it that you should only go to places like this in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. And so my friends and I went, and I was chatting up with a waitress and asked her, what is the most ridiculous thing that's happened to you on the job? She told me that one time a man walked in completely naked. I said, great, sign me up for the graveyard shift. (laughs) I didn't get that job either. Like many people with Asperger's, I also have difficulty interpreting social cues and body language. For me, eye contact is especially distracting and can be emotionally overwhelming. Of course, things are different now. At 23, I am poised for a career confident about my future but consider what I had to get, do to get there. Approximately 25 therapists, 11 misdiagnoses, and years of pain and trauma. That's why I spent a lot of time wondering if there might be a better way, and I think there is. Autism-assistive technology. This technology can play an integral role in helping people with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. One of the controversies in the autism field is this idea, should we search for a cure or search for tools to help manage it? And this is one of those things that help manage it. It's not a cure, and I don't believe a cure is necessarily the right answer. The only problem is that most of the technology on the market for ASD is geared towards young children and early diagnoses. But for people like me who received their diagnosis at 13, there are very limited tools that are age appropriate. The tool we are developing can help people independently assess and develop their communication skills. So that's why in 2013, I co-founded Podium, a social tech company for autism assistive technology. Our initial product is an app geared towards millennials like me. It's a simulator designed to help teens and adults with autism prepare for college or job interviews and simulates an audience as well, which is why I have Waldo. He's one of my favorite characters. And it's personalized to your needs. In a way, it's like a personal coach. Podium builds self-awareness by tracking eye contact. 
and it provides real-time corrective feedback. It can be a vital tool for anyone who struggles with social anxiety and those preparing to enter the workforce. What a lot of people don't realize what's important about eye contact is it's not necessarily locking your gaze with people's eyes, because if you do that too much, you just look creepy because you're staring at them. If you blink too much, it looks like he has something in your eye, but if you blink too little, you get the creepy effect. So how can we find that perfect balance that makes people feel like we're making an effort to connect with them without freaking them out? Well, we partner with Mass General Hospital Aspire program, and with Microsoft, we are currently working on a peer mentorship app who provides thousands of teens and young adults around the world access to resources when their community can't provide any. But why is this so important? It's important because autism is one of the fastest growing developmental disorders. It's also the developmental disability with the highest rate of unemployment. It's estimated that 80% of people with autism spectrum disorder are unemployed. This becomes more alarming when you consider that 1% of the world's population, or 7 million people, have autism. And the thing is, like the wolves in Yellowstone, people with autism have a lot to offer the world. Like me, they think differently. And more and more, we are discovering the value they have in fields like software development, medicine, biotechnology, engineering, and art. But there's a problem. Our workplaces too often shut out people with autism and shut down the contributions they might make. Think about it. One college interview with somebody you never met determines the next four years of your life. One interview with another person you just haven't met determines whether you get your dream job or not. It's absolutely ridiculous. So what's the answer to this problem? Recognizing the value on mental diversity and taking action to support it. Last year on April 1st, World Autism Day, Mary Ellen Smith, Corporate Vice President of the Worldwide Operations at Microsoft, spoke at the United Nations about Microsoft's pilot program to hire people with autism. The idea is that if people with autism can be supported in the things they're not so good at, like traditional job interviews and workplace social interaction, they can provide value by delivering what they are good at, like creative thinking and authenticity. It's about diversifying the workforce, which in turn helps companies thrive. In order to make these efforts go forward, Microsoft turned to two external par partners, Prevail and Specialist Turn. One of the greatest quotes is from one of the founders of these companies. And it's this idea that we need to move the needle. We're spreading the message that different can be good. Different is important. You really have to look at the growing population of people who have a disability or disorder as your potential next resource for a different, innovative idea that can help you become more innovative. I think at Microsoft, they really get that. They're used to people who are innovative and high-performing, but who are not mainstream. Someday, we may look back at Mary Ellen Smith's UN talk as a watershed moment. After this was launched, 
Microsoft was flooded with more than 1,000 emails and 700 resumes. And yes, they have revamped the interview process from one day to four weeks, where people with autism have more time and space to showcase their talents. The truth is, every sector of our society can benefit from the untapped potential of our autistic and mentally diverse community. But in order to make this happen, there needs to be a change in the environment and how we view it. The world is in desperate need of creative and intellectual minds to solve complex problems. But before we can do that, the culture needs to be built into a culture that accepts mental diversity. Why? Let's consider what the world would look like without people with autism. Imagine a world without Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Andy Warhol, Mozart, Darwin, Nikola Tesla, Jane Austen, Emily Dickinson, David Byrne, and Bill Gates. Think about all that we wouldn't have. But there are others, in fact millions of others, unable to share their talents with the world because of communication roadblocks and superficial social norms. I'm hoping that as we learn more, we can help more people with different kinds of minds become superstars in the world at large and in their own lives. While I was at the UN, I sat in on all the negotiations, trying to absorb as much as possible, and I really got an idea of where the world needs to go in terms of the environment. And I also learned how frustrating the communication process at the UN is. <laughs> Indecision everywhere. I learned that more now than ever, we need people who think differently. I learned that all of the challenges I've had to go through are a blessing. Our culture has conditioned us to view mental illness and developmental disabilities as difficult, something we should hide and be ashamed of. But my life experience, I know that being different is not a drawback, and communication with loved ones is key. My mind is an asset. It's a tool that I can use to make this world a better place. As a kid, I was convinced I was bad, mean, and weird, because that's how people saw me. But I am a really nice person. Humble, too. No, it's good. <laughs> I care about people deeply. I find myself trying to meet the needs of strangers that I just met. And even though I'm older now and hopefully more mature, which considering my inappropriate humor, that's not the case. A lot of my insecurities that I have today stem from my poor self-image that was built from society's idea of what mental illness means. I'm always second-guessing myself, wondering if I acted appropriately. Even at tonight, last night, I went to a welcome dinner for the Sydney Opera House, and these were the same insecurities that were coming up to this day. It doesn't matter how successful you become. I carry these insecurities around. But the way that we work through these insecurities is by interacting with the world with the person you want to be, rather than who you think you are. If we, if we can begin to recognize, appreciate, and reinforce the value of mental diversity, not only will society reap the immediate benefits of our specialized brains, but I am positive that the cascade effect will be monumental.
Thank you.